Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduce the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod, Multi-Effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take dramatic leaps so you can reach new heights with your music. And now your host, Bo Burchell. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am not A.L. I am Bo Burchell. You've been tricked. Uh, I'm taking over the podcast for uh, this month. And uh, my very first guest here is a longtime friend of mine. His name is Jeremy Griffith. He's one of the biggest worship mixers there are out there right now. He does all the huge worship records, as well as lots of heavy bands. Like he's done Norma Jean, Under Oath. He's he's super crazy good. He's one of he's a person that I can bounce uh, mixes off of. I've talked about that before. How important it is to have someone that you can trust to know your mixes and see if you're on the right track when you're mixing projects. But yeah, here he is, Jeremy. What's up? What up? <laughs> <laughs> so we first met in San Francisco at the Pound. Dang, on it. I never forget but, it. That and that was 2004 ish. Mm. Maybe uh, our record came out in four, but we were touring a whole year before it. It might have been three. Wow! It, you guys had kind of just started too, but you were already huge. <laughs> like two shows in, and you're huge. We <laughs> and that show was with Avenged Sevenfold as well. Um, oh yeah! And I met you and Anthony first. I, actually, Anthony walked out first and introduced himself, and then you came out and we talked to you for a while. So it was the pound in San Francisco. I'll never forget that place because it was a, a weird place. <laughs> and I think they had like the metal chef there, right? There was like some dude. He was like a metal guy that would cook food. I think so. I don't think we were included uh, on the food, but... Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the opening band doesn't get anything. <laughs> no, no. I'm not even sure we opened the show. We might have been Yeah, it was second. one other band, right? Yeah, we might anyway. have been second. It doesn't matter. But yeah. that's where we met. I'll, I don't know why. I'll never forget it. Wow. Crazy. So we've yeah. been friends for a long time. Mm-hmm. People probably don't know this, but you're you're like a, a multi-instrumentalist. You can play pretty much everything. Um, okay. On a, <laughs> right? I mean, like, I mean, you can play drums, like on all the Savio stuff. Savio is your solo project that you have. Yep. You play every you play everything on that, right? Um, well, I wrote most of it, but I, I definitely had some friends come in and play. Um, as a producer through the years, I just had to become a great multi instrumentalist instrumentalist, I guess. But I it's one of those things, you know, you start out I was originally a drummer and then one day my mom taught me piano and guitar. Wow, so you started as a drummer? I was first a drummer, yeah. Wow, interesting. I don't know, um, I can't believe you don't know that. Weird. No, no, I mean... It, we talk had... every day, you think this would... This right, would come, I know. By. Um, I always thought you would be a, a guitar player first, just because you rip so hard at guitar. Well, no, I started at drums, I think, because... Um, I, I, it sounds a little cheesy, but I had that classic, like, pots and pans in the garage story. Like, yeah. And my mother was just like, I can't take it. It's got to have some some kind of substance. <laughs> so when I was in seventh grade, she bought me a red pearl export kit. 
And my dad was in prison at the time, mm-hmm. and he had to work at a hobby shop um, as his job. So he was making me drumsticks all the time. No way. So uh, it's just kind of where it all started, and everyone could like contribute to my insanity of being a young boy and needing to like play something. So I was really into death metal, like hard, because I'm from Florida. Uh-huh. And I, I mean, they say that Tampa is like the capital of, I don't know, death metal because death is from there. Cannibal Corpse, yeah. Uh, uh, I think Deicide was from there, and so Cynic. And I was just really into those bands, but never, never quite uh, that good. Right. <laughs> and th- so, how did you transition into guitar and, I guess, piano? Well, it's weird. I think I learned guitar and piano early, but. Drums was the first thing that I was like, I'm going to get good at this. Mm. Where guitar and piano was just me and mom jamming. She would sing, you know, old songs. And my mom loved like Joan Baez and stuff like that. Right. So she was like real folky. And um, so she, I was just really interested in, in it, you know. But drums, I feel like, is what kind of taught me uh, a little bit of discipline. As far yeah. as like, all right, to get better, you actually have to try. So mm-hmm. I, I think guitar and piano were always around, but like I said, drums was like an avenue into wanting to get better. And then through the years, I just uh, wanted to play guitar. And then I wanted to play piano. And then one day I wanted to sing. That's just how it, that's how it worked. So I guess I'll jump to your first band, uh, or at least the first band that where we met, Moments in Grace. Mm-hmm. So I guess how did it, and that was pretty much your brainchild, right? It started that way and then ended up kind of wacky, but <laughs> um, it definitely was at first. And then uh, me and Jake Brown, mm-hmm. uh, Jake, who uh, had other, who was in other bands, like he was in Frodus for a while, mm-hmm. and he was uh, he had a band called On Moss, and then he has a new band called Veronier. He he and I kind of thought of it together, but I think for the most part, it was my songs per se and my singing and all that crap and those early demos were what i did play everything so then a band joined so gotcha so was that record the first time you were kind of like working with a big producer definitely because that because you guys were on atlantic right it was like a big deal yeah yeah it was uh i guess it would be like a storybook tale of getting signed we uh, let me just say well well how about this at this point how 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 uh this is Post college, right? Because I played college I, football, right? Okay, which not a lot of people know, but I'm really proud of it. It was some, it's it's something that when we were in the band, they told me not to talk about, and I was like, I've, I'm so confused. Like I thought right. music dudes <laughs> love sports. <laughs> like I was like, I played Division One college football, and I started like, <laughs> you know, I did I did pretty well, but yeah, after college football. I was actually living in Boston. I went up to Boston to work at a uh, school for disabled children called Perkins School for the Blind. It's where Helen Keller went to school. And I did that because I, at the time, I, my good friend Shane Gibson, he was up there going to Berkeley. And he was like, dude, you should come up here and go to Berkeley. And I was like, I just don't know if I'm a student. But I went up there and I knew about this school. And I worked at this school for two years where I helped kids. And it was amazing. And... Um, when I knew I was going to leave Boston, just because Boston at the time, when you're 21, it's not affordable. Right. <laughs> you know, so I cruised and I was talking to Jake 
the whole time we were we were literally sending tapes back and forth and that's how we came up with our first name postcard audio which is so emo but at the time i was so into like deep elm bands and you know like that whole scene where your name like is literal and it was a story tale of us doing that. We made a demo in this weird factory that my dad found me in Florida. Like I recorded it on my Echo Darla <laughs> two channel <laughs> interface with like um I think I had like an eight channel Mackie mm-hmm. thing. Everyone had a Mackie at some point and then I had the worst mics. I I don't even... I think I have one of them still. I would use it. <laughs> I would use it. But uh, we made this demo, and then we did what every band does when you start out, like, in the South. You you know, at the time, the internet wasn't very relevant, so, like, you, you're only... Your hopes are only expansive to the, to the points you know about. So, in my youth, the only towns that existed were Atlanta, New Orleans, Birmingham, Alabama... And Tallahassee and some Tampa because of the death metal thing. And so we were like, dude, we got to play this pizza place in Montevallo, Alabama that's really popular. And it really was like Jimmy World play there. Like, I had to drive in. Like, that day is kind of over. Like, the day of the rad pizza spot that had shows and kids came out and, and, and nailed it. That, that's over. But, um, Maybe it's not. I mean, I'm just maybe I'm just completely disconnected from it. But we went up to this uh, this pizza place and we played a show with the Liars Academy. Do you remember them? I I don't. It's some of the guys from Strike Anywhere, and then another band called Branson, Deep Elm Band. I remember Branson. Yeah. So it was a great show. It was packed. We did we did a nice show. I I think at the time we were we were good live. You know, I mm-hmm. think that was our strength. I think our recording was kind of weak, but. I, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing, really. Right. <laughs> but uh, the Liars Academy was going in with Brian McTurnan like a month later to do like two songs because like, Brian was like a hot dog at the time. Yeah. And dude, they were li- literally listening to our demo like CD while they were having lunch outside. Mm-hmm. And Brian walked out and was like, "What's that? What is that?" And called us. Literally, that's the story. It wasn't like. You know, our manager got in touch with a publicist, and that publicist knew this girl, and this girl knew Brian. It was literally they were eating, and he walked so, out. And heard so basically, it. you were just good, and the right person heard it at the right time and wanted to move on it. I don't know if we were good. I think he just saw a, a potential, and then he met me, and he was totally bummed about how big of a guy I was. <laughs> <laughs> he was. I mean, well, because you're you're what six three or six four? Six five. I'm 6'5". You know, when I was in college playing football, I weighed like 330. Wow. Yeah, dude. You have to be massive. Right. I know. I know. So I had a really tough time after college, like, with my weight and everything because, you know, it just... You keep the weight, but your muscle leaves. (laughs) So (laughs) you just turn into this blob. But um, that part of it was really tough. But that's... He, at the time, had been working on, like... A developmental deal with Atlantic, I think, because a bunch of his bands that he had produced, I think, maybe had signed with them and they had exploded. But he had just done Thrice, and Thrice actually went to Island. 
and they did that Artist in the Ambulance album, and it was huge and all that. So I just think he had a lot of pool at the time. So we were his first and only band on his Salad Days imprint, which the album actually never came out on Salad Days. It came Atlantic upstreamed it, mm. which is interesting because we weren't ready for that. So yeah. Anyway, so were you recording bands on your own before that? Or you had just done the demo and then you went straight in and worked well, with him? Definitely a hobbyist, you know, okay. dreaming of the future mm-hmm. of, of being some great producer. You know, I'd always been into it. Honestly, I'd been recording since high school. Uh, I found a four-track reel-to-reel in my, my family's garage, and it's still over there. It's in the corner right. of my studio because it was the first <laughs> first thing I ever had that overdubbed. And it has a function on it called SimulSync, which I'm still really confused on why my parents had it in the garage. Because, well, you know, back in the day, this is something I learned, you know, a lot of records came out on reel-to-reel, and tons of mm-hmm. people had reel-to-reel albums, but they only needed a two-track album because most of it was either mono or stereo, period. Why mm-hmm. did they have a four-track recorder? I still Maybe have never knew. got... They've still never got an answer. So... That's where I started, and then by that time that we talked to Brian, I think, I think I was actually past the Echo Darla, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had an. At the time, they it was w- the weirdest like no name interface uh, that had eight inputs, eight quarter inch inputs, and I think I was on that and working in Cubase, and I had recorded a few local bands and done a terrible job, but I was really trying and I was really eager, and at the time, you know, no internet. <laughs> No knowledge to learn unless you go somewhere and sit with someone or just make so many mistakes. So right, that's so when you were so when you were in with McTurnan, were you interested in kind of like the more technical or like engineering or that type of process, or were you just there kind of like strictly as a band? I was there as a band. You know, honestly, I thought about that recently. Like, why didn't I get so stoked when I walked in and? saw all that stuff, you know, because he had everything. Like, Mm -hmm. just on a gear level. Right. Everything. Yeah, that was a big studio. It was crazy. And he's not much older than me, so, like, I was just so blown away with how much he had accomplished already. And I know he started really young, and some stuff really blew up. But, you know, it's been so long, I don't recall if I ever showed knowledgeable interest as far as, like... Hey Brian, here's an educated question rather than, dude, man, just sounds killer in here, you know, like because right. I t- I talk like that, but <laughs> I don't remember. I remember being so frustrated and so immersed in the songs and the process of pre-production that any chance I got to leave the studio, I was excited. Okay. So, uh, no, I don't think I don't think I showed a lot of interest. I really wish I had. Do you, uh, is there anything that you took away from that experience? Like when you're producing bands now, is there any, is there ever a time when you're like, oh man, like this happened to me and it was crappy. So I'm going to be sensitive about that or. Yeah. I kind of think I base everything on my experiences there. Really? Yeah. I, I know exactly how not to treat artists. And honestly, when I first started getting a chance to work with bands, like, like that were decent, Mm -hmm. I, I kind of went into it with a bad attitude. Like I, I felt like I was mimicking McTurnan, where mm-hmm. Brian, Brian was, I think he was very good, but he was, he was pretty mean about a lot of stuff. And early on, I feel like I felt 
that's how it had to be done. And maybe at one point for him it did because to get the best out of somebody and not have unlimited options as far as t- you know pro tools and everything where now we can re- we can really help people out. Right. <laughs> back back then you just couldn't. So I think that's where his mentality came from, but I knew from the, my experiences with him that I was never going to treat the people I was working with like shit. Did I do it? Sure, I know I did it a few times and I've had battles with clients and I've tried hard not to and sometimes you know that the the early my early methods shine through sometimes and I don't like them, but mm-hmm. I I knew that I wasn't going to treat people the way he treated people and I I made a conscious decision and you know maybe it's more recent, I don't know if it is, but I, I really just want people to be happy. I want to in, I want to enforce the way I feel about the songs in a constructive way, but I don't want to do it in a demeaning or a uh, negative way anymore, period. So I learned that from Brian, and I, I don't even know if he knew he was doing it. I just know that it really affected me for like my entire life. Not kidding. Like, wow. how intense it was. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, like I kind of feel the same way, you know, musicians are very, I don't want to say sensitive, but you know, it's like the, yeah, when you're dealing with an artist, you have a person who has very specific feelings and is very in touch with, with, you know, you would think they're in touch with their feelings, but sometimes they're wrong. But anyways, like, you know, like the way you get treated in these situations is a, is a big, it's a big factor on, especially like if you're thinking about like, you know, retaining work. You know, like the way you're treat. If someone treats you like crap, you're definitely not going to want to come back to them next record. Well, it's funny and, you say that because I, I, I know so many people who are really close with Brian. Right. Yeah, I just kind of figured out that he didn't really like who I was, and um, he loved my music and he loved my singing, but he honestly didn't like uh, who who I was and what I what I wanted to be as a a creative. I guess. Hmm. So we just didn't get along, but he was really close with a lot of people. I honestly hate like slamming him these days just because one, my experience with him shouldn't reflect everyone's. So, right. Yeah. I mean, it's just your experience. It was really rough though. I mean, he, he really, there were a lot of other things beyond the music that really like messed me up. But so I guess after that, like what, um, there was one EP that you, two EPs actually, this band city of ships. Yeah. And I thought those were awesome. So let's see, that would be 2004-ish that you were doing this. How long after was it when you started doing bands like that? Man, I think that was like right after that. Maybe 2005, 2006. So it sounds like right after the band, then, you jumped right into recording then, or well, producing. I th- yeah, I think I was doing the classic band guy thing where you're like, well, you know, I can't, <laughs> I can't get out of music. Right. This is who I am, man. Right. But I think it actually was, and so I really, I really wanted to keep going. And at that point, I had really changed my thinking on gear and what I wanted to learn. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be really good. So mm-hmm. I got lucky with City of Ships, man. They, they were really young and they rip. Yeah, uh, it ripped. And so I did that in Florida um, on a Digi O2 mm-hmm. with a Yamaha O2R console. What, did you did you have like a home studio or anything or what did you what were you doing? I had like a little home studio rig, but I was using this weird studio in St. Augustine, Florida called Toes in the Sand. <laughs> 
And it was a radar studio. So they had a radar rig. But I mean, honestly, at that time, I'm like, uh, what, uh, what do I do with that thing? So they let me bring in my O2 rig and hook up and Pro Tools LE. You know, I think I had 32 tracks, maybe, which is insane. So much power. So, <laughs> so, so you started doing those and then, I mean, it looks like, oh man, uh, I'm, I'm just looking at your discography right now and I'm seeing the secret state <laughs> and, uh, that was a record that we did together. And I guess that would be a whole, that would be a whole podcast in itself. Oh my um, poor, those guys got, it's, it's insane. I can't even believe yeah. that story. So I guess, how do you go from, from doing just kind of like, you know, like you said, like City Ship's kind of like a young, unknown band to then all of a sudden it's like Under Oath, Seosin, Norma Jean, you know, like much like bigger bands. Like, how did you make the jump to that? Well, I think Seosin, you, you know this, I have a lot, I feel like I owe to Seosin, um, taking a chance on me and asking me to come in and and help on vocals and stuff like that. And I mean, really that's do say this. It's like my first big <laughs> job, <laughs> you know, cause at the time, well, the first one, but I mean, you were doing like programming on, you know, four letter lie. You did under oath. I mean, like some stuff on under oath for well, lost so in the sound. Those all came after Seosin. So I did Seosin, um, and it just really helped me, have that name to attach to my name and then Norma Jean I had done a ton of small bands here and there bands were actually traveling to me but they were all very small some of them were on very small labels and what have you and Norma Jean actually heard that City of Ships recording and they were like this is the best ever because let's yeah, just be clear let's just be clear City of Ships just rips yeah, they're great. They made, they made me look great. I think I, I made a nice recording, and I listen to it now, and I'm like, oh, there's so much I would do differently, but not at all. It's just, like, so good. It's really loose, but it's really beautiful and, and chaotic at the same time. But they heard that, and it was funny. At the time, I was renting the B studio at Glow in the Dark, Matt Goldman's mm -hmm. studio, right. which a lot of people confuse with I worked for Matt. I never worked for Matt. We worked together on a few things, and maybe he would have me do some things f with him because at the time he was huge. Yeah, um, st he's still doing well, but I, I uh, was trying my best just to rent his front room when I could. And so Norma Jean came by one day, and it's really funny because I thought they were coming by to talk to Matt. Oh, and they come by. They came by to talk to me, and I think that all came about because of Chris Rains, and mm. Chris Rains was in Spitfire and. The basis for Spitfire is one of my best friends, Jimmy Reeves. And so we had that connection and he gotcha. knew about City of Ships and he was like, guys, we got to get this guy to do our record, which is pretty ballsy. Like the record before was, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, the guy in LA, he did... Uh, Ross Robinson? Ross Robinson, yeah. Right. So they did Ross Robinson like three times, and the you know that guy did Corn and like, and then they're just gonna get little old Jer from the South. <laughs> so it meant a lot that they wanted uh, to do that record with me, and and so that was probably my second big record. But it was pretty deep into me just recording bands, you know, like yeah. years and years of extreme struggle, like barely getting by. But you Call were pretty much doing it full time. 
Trying. Like, that's all you were doing, pretty much. Trying, yeah. Calling mom. <laughs> hey, mom. Yeah, borrowing. I'm so broke and heard like crying on the phone because I'm just a failure. But <laughs> she never said that. She was really supportive, you know. So, yeah. Then I did Norma Jean, and I produced and mixed the, the album Meridional. That record rules. It's cool. Cool album. I listened to it the other day, actually, on my drive to Nashville, and I was like, man, this thing is chaos. I just, I just love the songs on that record. Like, yeah, those guys really, are They're great. really good. They're those, really good. Yeah, Norma Jean is just, they're just a special group of dudes just making ripping jams. So, yeah, I did that. Um, and then not long, long after, Goldman was going to produce that Under Oath album, and then Under Oath asked me, to co-produce with Goldman on that album, Disambiguation. So, like I wow. said, there's so many bands before that. Oh, geez, I just don't even recall. I just well, and there's a lot of bands that are like not listed on your all music, right? Because I mean, oh. I have I have a lot of those too, where it's like, you know, they're great bands, but like they're it, it, like a record didn't come out on a on a label, or it didn't come out on something that makes it not show up in your discography. And it's yeah, sometimes my- a record you're really proud of, but it's like no one finds out about it. My battle with all music is never going to end. I mean, I have written them so many times being like, hey, can I submit these <laughs> bands that I'm really proud of mm-hmm. that are very good? Like, there's a band from Tampa called Guiltmaker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of my favorite bands I ever worked with in my life. And uh, Dan, the guitarist in Guiltmaker, was in these like famous grindcore bands, one called Reversal of Man and one called Combat Wounded Veteran. Mm-hmm. Just like... But they didn't tour, no label, but they're just the best, most fun band to work with. And I and all music just gave me such shit about it. Like, uh, they just wanted so many details. And it's like, man, we were kind of entering the era of dead labels. And people were just like, I have some money. I'm going to go record with Jer. So, um, I mean, I want to say there's probably a hundred albums that aren't on there. Right. Like, literally... Like yeah, I mean I've I mean I'm I definitely sure yours don't is have more. I don't have a hundred, but maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe but it's, <laughs> up there, <laughs> it's a lot enough that you know my all music page would go from two pages to like six. <laughs> you right? Know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't even remember everything I've worked on. So yeah, that happens. And you've also worked with like a very wide variety of bands, which is something that I mean I don't have the variety that that you do. But that's something that I feel like is very important that a lot of people miss out on now. You know, like, like how do you feel like working, or, or I guess how did you go from starting at such like a kind of heavy, heavy, like hardcore underground scene to now you're doing like these huge, like, you know, I, I just saw you a couple weeks ago and it's like you're recording at like Capitol Records B Studio with like, you know, world-class musicians for like, uh, you know, a Capitol Records release that's like, I can't even, it's like, I can't even believe the budgets that are on these things. Like just, <laughs> it, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's like, wow, that's like big time. Those are the records that like you hear about stories. I mean, like, you know, it's like, man, this is like Metallica recording, you know, like how do you, like, how do you jump from like going to that to all of a sudden just like the top of like, I guess the worship world or was that what you would call it or? Yeah, I guess so. There's there's multiple genres in in religious music. I, I they have a couple classifications. Honestly, I don't quite know how to classify them. <laughs> I, I don't. I, right. I I know I'm mixing some of the like really top artists in that genre, or and producing some, but 
some of it I don't uh, understand the way they understand it. I'm in the in the business of uh, making it sound awesome. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, and I've said to a few people recently who have asked me about it and they like, are, you know, are you into it? Are you not into it? And I'm like, I'm into anything that's at the top of their genre. Totally. If they're the best at it, wouldn't you be interested in doing it? Like, right. Well, like and also I, it's like, if it's a good song, it's a good song. Exactly. You know, you could hate the lyrics and many times I do. Let's just be clear. <laughs> There's lots of songs I hate the lyrics that right. uh, you know, are across the board. But yeah, you know, like the Capitol Records thing, like, I, it was a dream come true to work with some of those musicians. Like there was this guy there named Aaron Lindsay who played piano and organ. He has like eight Grammys. I'm in Capitol Records recording this dude and I'm thinking while I'm recording I'm like this guy makes me sound like the greatest recording engineer that has ever lived like everyone's gonna listen to this and be like how did you do that and all I can say is like I didn't do anything right (laughs) that guy is special so to get back to your question early on when I was doing heavy bands I already had that like fear of being pigeonholed which is kind of dumb, I guess, but I knew that I was, I really wanted to spread my wings, <laughs> to be cliche there. But, you know, like I'm really, I really want to do like a neo soul album. And mm-hmm. I was always into indie rock and I like, I like urban music, but I also like metal and everything. So I feel like I took a lot of financial hits early on because I really worked hard trying to work with people I felt were different that I had access to in anyone I could like just I'm, I'm gonna turn down the heavy band and do the band with no money because I think it, it I need it right and so I did a lot of that and the Christian music is kind of how that came about I have this good friend um, named Jonathan Berlin who was in this band called Sun Bears that's not a great record you did I've done all of their records I've only produced one I produced You Will Live Forever and the other ones I've mixed and sort of helped with production but Jonathan's a great producer too but he'd actually become kind of like a a go-to studio musician for a lot of people and he actually got invited to play on a couple of these big Christian albums and so some of these artists were asking him about his own records and who mixed them Mm. And he was like, my friend Jeremy, um, he's done a ton. At the time, it's funny, because he's like, he's done all these heavy bands, but he can do anything. Right. You know, and and so I, I, got, I started getting a few calls from these Christian producers, and they started having me come work on these projects. And I, I didn't even know it at the time, but, you know, it, it would turn into this huge scene that I didn't even know existed. I knew Christian music existed, right. but I, I I didn't know. I knew they had their own award show, so I should have put it together <laughs> <laughs> that they had they had something going on. So I re- I really feel like that was the the starter of it. Right? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's great. Well, how do you like? I always find it so cool when a producer is or or mixer or anyone involved with a band is able to kind of like become that kind of integral uh invaluable part 
of a band, you know, like, like for instance, you know, Sunbear, you said that you did five records with them. I think we're on four. We're on four, maybe. Even still, to do two records with a band, like to make it through one record and not want to kill each other is pretty remarkable, you know? And like, I have a couple bands where, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I've done like, you know, three records for this band, two records for that band. But like, what do you (laughs) think is your, do you have a strategy or do you have any like qualities or characteristics that you feel like contribute to you being able to continuously work with like certain bands? Like I know like, you know, Corey from Norma Jean, like loves working with you, you know, like, like how do you get these like what? What? What is it? What? Tell me your secrets. Tell me your <laughs> secrets. How do? You, how do you do that? Good question. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not quite sure. I I think some of it is potentially my personality because I'm kind of goofy and I like to have fun. But with singers, I just think I've always had an ability to push them in a certain way because um, I always. You know, when you first start producing, the whole idea is just to inflict on them you, the way you would sing. And so that's kind of how I started. You know, when I first started working with Cove, I was like, what would I do? And a lot of these guys loved that. I think with the bands who keep coming around like that, um, that's something they really love. But I feel like most of them just found themselves in me trying to make them sound like me. <laughs> gotcha. Which is, you know, I mean, it's the same with mixing. Like, when you mix a song, it's you've said this to me countless times. It's like, well, it's it's how I want to hear it. It's the same type of thing as, as trying to get a singer to sing, you know, yeah. what you're thinking, because it's how you would have sang it. But I think a lot of great producers are able to remove themselves from themselves yeah. and to get into the minds of... Uh, that particular vocalist or whatever. But, you know, I don't really have a great answer for that other than we become really, you know, you know how it is when you work with a band for a really, really long time or an artist, like you, you either become really good friends or you don't. Right. And so most of the time the return, you know, clients, you know, you, you're friends with, you're probably texting daily or right, congratulating each other on kids and just all that stuff, you know? So, you know, that's a, that's a hard question to answer, Bo. <laughs> maybe so, I maybe I answered so, it. So basically, you just kill it, and you don't know how you just kill it. I don't think I kill it all the time. I really try, but <laughs> sometimes you just implode, and you realize you did a shitty job. But um, yeah, I don't know. All right, that's let's tough. skip to some let's skip to some some dorky stuff. I think this is kind of interesting. So you're pretty much at. The you know, you work on a whole different type of record, all different types. You do everything from like songwriting to producing and mixing records, or all three at the same time. You know, right. you're always being really creative. It seems like you know, like any bigger or like established producer, people are coming to you because they want your thing, mm-hmm. right? Like you, right? You know what I mean? It's not like yeah. they're they're coming to you and being like, oh well, you know, we're gonna try you out or this it's like no we heard another record you did and and we want you right because you're in kind of like a a small town in florida right now right yeah uh destin florida actually for walton Walton, right yeah Yeah. but i I say destin because destin destin's a destination for vacation oh okay gotcha big time so so you're there now but like you've been in atlanta you know in new york city for a while you've moved around a bit do you feel like your location impacts your work at all I don't know 
if it just, impacts... I'm, I'm asking because there's probably a lot of people that are that are wondering, like, you know, like, I'm in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Like, how am I supposed to kind of get somewhere if I live here? You know, yeah, like... I, I couldn't have done it at the beginning. Okay. I couldn't have been here. Um, but, you know, I think the advantages of being in those places is just talking to people and seeing people and, you know, being down the street, like... I think about you a lot. You're a California dude, so you're just there. That's who you are. That's where you're from. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I was a label guy in California, you know, I would be like, well, Bo, he's down the street. Let's go see him. Let's talk about this. You know, you're mm-hmm. in. I think for me, I'm at a disadvantage in some ways for those types of conversations or just, you know, general mingling. You know, I don't, I don't, some people call it schmoozing and maybe it is, but it's really about making friends in the industry for real. Yeah. And them trusting in you and uh, seeing them on a regular basis. But I I don't get that luxury here. Um, but people I mean, do- I'm out I'm out here and I'm terrible at it. Like I have like I don't want to say social anxiety, but like I think we're both the same way. I am not good at like I get uber dumb chills when you kind of like meet those people that's like, Hey, what's up? My name's Steve. I did this, this. And like, they list all their accolades and you're just like, Oh my God. Like, do we really have to justify ourselves right now? Like, can't we just talk? You know, honestly, I don't have to talk to people like that. I, I feel lucky that most of the people I've met through the whole deal have been pretty cool for the most part. And most people are just like me and they're just, you know, trying to put the pieces together to continue on. So my location do I think it would be valuable to be like in a Nashville or a New York? Sure. Just to see people and everything. Do I think it affects my work at this point? No, not right now. Um, the internet is just so powerful. But getting your name out there and becoming trusted is difficult. That is the difficulty. You might be the best mixer or producer that's ever lived, but getting that trust established from others, that's the hard part. To me, like becoming a go-to guy is just, it's been, you know, I mean, what are we on? What, what, what year is it? We're, we're like, <laughs> we're like 15 years in on doing this and it's, right. I feel like it's just now getting to where somebody's like, man, I know you'll kill this for us. Thanks so much. Where for years, and I still have to do it, you know, there's a lot of test mixing. There's a lot of, you know, putting your name in there like, hey man, would love to be a part of this record. You know, there's, I don't think that ends. Maybe if you come, become a Michael Brower or something, and you do. But I think even he still kind of does that. You know, I mean, I've even had, uh, there was a band, I mean, I don't want to say the name of the person, but it was mm-hmm. like, there was a band that I was kind of like talking to, and, you know, and it was like, I'm on pretty good terms with them. Like, I've already mixed a record for them. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, I'd love to do your next record, you know? And they're like, yeah, cool. And we were just at lunch one day, and he's like, dude, you'll never believe who just hit me up. And it was like this, like, pretty huge yeah. producer, you know? And it's like, they just sent me a message on Facebook, and, like, they want to do my band, you know? And yeah. it's like, you're right. It, it never ends, you know? But yeah. it's wild. Yeah, but it's, you know, those guys do really great work, and, you know they might find a band they love too. Like your, right. your fr- friend's record, they might've been like, this is totally my speed. I just want to do it. Just like us. Like I hear artists all the time that I, and I'll write a message and be like, I just love it. Can I just help? And they'll be like, sorry, man, we're totally, we got our people. And you're like, great. Keep making songs. I love yeah, this. Yeah. So yeah. I get it. Yeah. It's just, like I said, just being trusted is everything. So yeah. Yeah. 
And I feel like I've potentially gotten there with some yeah. people. No, you're you're pretty much you mix on a console, right? Sometimes. Or sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess on on the console is for kind of like when you can kind of really go for it, and and when you're kind of like more. So you're hybrid then, right? Oh, definitely. Okay, I'm kind mm-hmm. of a similar thing, but without that. I mean, console. yeah, I copy everything you do. So <laughs> <laughs> whatever you're doing, I'm like, oh well, I better do that too. <laughs> I you know I kept my console and like bands like Sunbears, for instance, they came to me and they're like, hey man, we want to do a console mix. We want to mm-hmm. use very few plugs, and we want to do ZR recalls. Mm. So for me, That's this my dream. was oh, it was so fun. We actually did it. In, <laughs> we did it in New York where we we could not car check. Wow. Yeah. So they came up, and you know we did the files right there, and I mixed. I would mix a song, and the song, yeah, the song would take me a while because they're so kind of nuts. Like it's it's very just psychedelic rock kind of Beatles and um, I'd mix a song I'd turn around to Jonathan and I'd be like so what do you think and he was like it's awesome can we change this this and this and this and this and you know you'd have a massive list because he's so good and we would change it and he'd listen to it and he'd be like hmm that's better okay print it and we would literally print it and then right there on the spot we'd make we'd print the instrumentals all the alt versions and every stem so each song was a full day wow you know what I mean? Just because yeah. there's no offline bouncing with your Neotech. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, records like that, there's a few songs I did on Five Iron Frenzy, their al- album I produced, um, Engine of a Million Plots. That I did like, I think I did like four songs on that album on the console and the rest in Pro Tools. I don't remember why. I think some of the other ones I knew would just be a little bit more back and forth with Scott, who co-produced it with me, who plays bass and writes a lot of the songs for Five Iron. So, yeah, I'm definitely a hybrid. These days, um, like on these really big uh, Christian records and stuff, I'm doing Pro Tools with a good amount of outboard through hardware inserts and stuff like that, you know. So. is that just due to the amount of recalls? Yeah, you know, most of them don't hit me with an immense amount of recalls. Um, but like the last project I just did, it, we did a lot, I think, because there was some stuff we just hadn't figured out yet. So there was a lot of back and forth because the artist was from England, and so we were just back and gotcha. forthing a lot. So, yeah, you know, HDX is kind of kind of rad. <laughs> and you're running a Pro Tools rig? Pro Tools HDX. Gotcha. Do you have like a limit on recalls that you'll do? What's your approach on it? I guess do you do you kind of let them do what it's like? Okay, cool. Well, I'll go down this road and explore it. Or do you kind of mm. cut them off? Or is it case by case? After two recalls, I write this email. Hey guys, <laughs> maybe I wasn't the right person for the job. <laughs> like I do it just because I'm like, if we need to keep doing this much stuff that I feel is completely irrelevant that you think is going to make all the difference in the world, then maybe I did something wrong. And Usually they're like, no, man, we're just being really picky. And at that point, I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I I just want to know if I'm not doing it right or something, because just getting pages and pages of notes, I know for the artist or the musician, they they think it it matters a lot. And maybe it really does. But I just think at that point is when I am like, whoa, maybe I just didn't understand the complete vision of this. You know, and I was like, I'm not trying to be rude or get out of it. And I really appreciate everyone wanting to use me. But, um, you know, my first mix, 
I'm usually really happy. Yeah, me too. Like very happy. And I'm like, wow, that's how I wanted to hear it. Sometimes I don't get it right. We're humans. And they'll be like, hey, man, we're a little off there. And then I'll change it. And then I'll be like, they were right. Totally. Yeah. But, but sometimes, most of the time, if you know, most of the time we don't go past two recalls ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I had to say it's pretty rare for me. Yeah. So. I'm some, I think, I think once you get to that level, you know what I mean? It's like, if you, you get to that level where you should be able to do a mix and it's like, yeah, it's pretty much done and this is how it's going to be. It's, it's locked in. Yeah. You can adjust a few levels here and there, or maybe you might want something filtered or an effect that totally. like maybe, maybe you didn't see creatively, mm-hmm. but, but for the most part, the mix is the mix, you know? Yeah. And you know, a lot of it has to come from my end too, of preparing the people to prepare the files. So for years, I don't think I was giving people adequate information on how to set it up for me. Mm-hmm. And so now I have this huge you know, list of things that I want you to do that basically protect the client. Right. And then they send it to me and I'm like, oh, I totally get it. You know, and when they do that, I, I mix a song and usually the email back was, you nailed it. And you're like, perfect. So, you know. So do you it, feel like that's helped you a lot? Oh, I couldn't live without it now. What what are some things in there that you're like that have really helped within that list? I mean, obviously there's the whole like you know whatever you know whatever DAW you're working in, you know, print continuous files so I can import them into here. But totally. is there anything else that's? Well, I think a lot of producers sometimes don't trust themselves with effects and cool moves and stuff. But I think sometimes they f- forget that that is production. And so they'll take all that crap off and then they'll send it to me and then they'll ask me, hey, why didn't you do this? And I'm like, because I didn't know to. Yeah. You're like the whole beginning of the song, the drums aren't filtered. I'm like, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) They're not filtered because you didn't filter them. And they're like, what do you mean? I thought you would know. And they're like, we sent you a rough mix. And I'm like, "Uh, oops, you know, like, (laughs) right. And so, you know, it's more about that now. It's. I want them to prepare it where they're happy. Right. And they can give me, you know, I want them to print their effects, filter drones, but give me the original. Maybe I can do it a little differently that makes it come through in a better way. Right. Or something like that. But it makes mixing really fun when everything is prepped to their liking. And then you mix it and they then they're thanking you for making it sound as good as it does. But you're like, well, you, you produced it correctly by giving me all the stuff I needed. So that aspect of it has really, really helped me. Yeah. I feel like that's a, another one of those things where it's like, as a mixer, you're kind of being hired to take to, what do they call those races? Like the, uh, when they hand off the baton, why am I blanking oh, on that? It's a medley relay. Relay race. Relay. You know what I mean? So it's like the producer has done all the tracking and like the Mm -hmm. producing. And, you know, at like, let's just say 400 yards, he hands the baton to you and now you take it across the finish line. Totally. But like when they get to that 400 yard mark and then they take everything out of the session, it's like they've just put you back to the 100 yard mark. And like now you have to, you know what I mean? And it's like that, I mean, that's just really smart, I feel like, because I mean, I almost like it sometimes if they can almost send the session to where it's like at their rough mix point. No, totally, yeah. I, and then I can take it beyond. Yeah, I mean, I prefer just wave files. Like, I, I hate the busy work of setting up a session. And I know um, some too. guys have like three assistants and they don't even know what that means anymore to set it up. Right. But right. for me, you know, when I get wave files and everything's printed, I, I mean, dude, I'm rolling quick. But you're right. It's just, yeah, don't, 
that was a problem for years where I just couldn't get it where they had it. And it's like, I don't think this is my fault. And then for right. a while, it made me feel somewhat like I was lazy, like asking them to do these things. But it's just not the case. It's just production. Right. I, I have to have what you did. There's that hmm. process. <laughs> do you have like any, like, do you use like templates or anything? Or do you have any kind of like standard import audio things that you use on? Like, is there any things that you find that you use on every session? Well, do you have like a template thing or do you just start from scratch every record? Well, you taught me how to make uh, <laughs> my own create new track templates, basically. And that's okay. kind of where I'm at now, where I have, I've created multiple templates depending on the type of song I'm recording. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, mixing. So, you know, you remember how you taught me early on to make, you know, create new track and I can scroll down and basically create yeah. my own presets. So, right. I have like five now, depending on the sound, uh, the song, which will have a certain verb, a certain modulation, a certain short delay, a certain long delay, and maybe a certain slap. And I'll set those up and I'll like, you know, say a song I feel like can be a little bit more like raw dog and a little more indie sound- sounding. Might have a plate plug with a really fast slap with some kind of really affected tail ray long delay, you know, and then say a song is cleaner and I'm using like an IRL impulse response verb um, with a really clean delay. You know what I mean? Like, right. I do stuff like that and I set up um, just certain routing from the get-go, but I think each song actually is pretty unique. I use different bus compressors on my drums and bass and everything, depending on the song. Well, a lot of times I'll import the data, and I'll listen to it, and I'll be like, whew, kind of kind of intense on this one, not what I wanted. Right. If I'm doing like a chill song, and so I just approach it a little differently, but like the way you taught me to do this, um, create new tracks, things has, has saved me. So Yeah, it saves a lot of time. It's amazing. Thank you, Bo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I have different uh, different stuff I use uh, from track to track. But honestly, like now I have like so many plugs and so much like gear. I'm trying to do something different. Like I, I don't want to get bored. Yeah, so it's just mainly out of like boredom. I Not the, trying to fall into a rut, I guess. I do have the exact same music bus on every song. I use the TK Audio and the P38, and then I have those two warm audio EQs that we both have that we love. Those are great. They're great. And um, <clears throat> that is always on my music bus. Mm-hmm. That's probably the only thing that is standard for me. And then as I get the album going, then I create new standards for that particular record. Do you understand? Yeah, totally. So, You're kind of creating the sound of the record. Exactly. D- depending on what it needs. Yep, and then I go from there. I I just can't use the same thing on everything. It's just not fair to the songs. Yeah, it's 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 funny like I I always envy like those people that like just do like 150 BPM rock ballads, you oh, know, man. or like or like they only do grindcore and like oh. they're they're able to like have those kind of templates just ready to go and it's like that's my thing that I do. Totally. But yeah, like when we're doing all these different types of bands, it's it's so hard to have that. I know? just feel really lucky to even be working in music, so I'm going to give it right. my all and I just want to do something differently, but I'm not discrediting those guys like I know a, no, lot, totally. of, a lot of those country guys, man, they freaking they got their setup and they crush it. Yeah. And they're so yeah. good. It's just it's just not my not my thing. Yeah. So, here's another thing. So, so working with 
working with all sorts of different artists. How important is it, do you, do you think, to, to be well-versed in like all styles of music versus like, like, do you think that gives you an edge over other guys that are like, oh, I only listen to this kind of music, you know? I, or I don't think it gives me an edge. I think it gives them an edge in their particular genre. Because I kind of have my fingers in everything that I don't know the extreme of every genre. But I I love it all, you know? Like, I, like lately, all I'm listening to is, is, is old Frank Sinatra. Like, all I listen to. <laughs> I mean, uh, me and my wife probably have 12 mono LPs that I'm just like, I'm like, it's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Wow. I don't think that's going to help me uh, mixing a metal band, but like, I definitely think it has helped me have a sound that I didn't know I was creating. Cause you know, you and I have talked about this before. Like there's times where I'm like, I'm going to make the slickest mix ever. And I make this mix and I'm just like, for sure that it's slick and totally different from what I normally do. And I send it to you and you're looking at me and you go, Oh, sounds like a Jeremy mix. Right. And I'm just like, uh, totally. <laughs> you know, but I think being a music lover of most genres is really smart as a creative. Yeah. Um, I don't think it gives me an edge as a mixer. I, you know, when I, when I do a new genre, like I really want to do an R&B record so bad. Like mm -hmm. I want to do like Anthony Hamilton or something like so bad. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan, but I'm going to have to like research it. Cause I've never listened to it as a mix engineer. Oh, I get you. I've never put on Anthony Hamilton and been like, oh, oh, a snare drum. Oh, sick. Right. It's always I, just been pleasure, pleasure listening. Yeah. I turn it on. I'm like, give me a cocktail. I'm about to chill. Right. You right. know, so I, you have to, you have to trade brains for a minute to, to learn it. But I just think I'm lucky to be working in all genres and, you know, like even in the Christian world, I'm I'm doing a lot of big albums in that scene, but I still don't think I'm the go-to guy. I, they still have guys that like are machines, and I think it's the same way in all the genres where you're just like, "Jeez, that guy, he just right. killed it!" Like mm -hmm. in a couple hours. But they come to me, I make a mix, and when I send it back, they're like, "It is so different from what we're used to, and we love it." I love that. That's my favorite response. Right. It sounds great, and it's just something new for us. And I'm like, oh, did my job. I'm so happy. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's it's nothing more than me just hearing it a certain way. No discredit to those other guys. They're great. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. Does that answer the question at all? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's okay. it's just it's just all about establishing your own sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like this 100 Sons record that you just mixed, that I mixed a few songs, and they were like, <laughs> we're just not feeling it. <laughs> you know, I think it's really because in a lot of ways that I'm I'm not totally connected with the music they love. And and you have a better grasp on that and you just crushed it. So you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like I don't feel like I had a total edge on it. Now when I do Norma Jean, who loves chaos, and I mix it the way I mix heavy music, they love it. Right. You know, so it's just no, it's the it's, same way. I mean, like I was just talking to someone about you know like metal production because for me the way i hear drums is is a very way more natural sound whereas like you know drums now on most metal records it's like man a snare drum does not sound like that you know <laughs> and it, you know what i mean or it's like the drum kit is just so hyper real and extreme 
that that like it's just not really how like I hear drums. You know, I hear it more as like a kit and like in a room rather than like cannons going off like in a in a canyon you know it's just which, a fight it's just a machine gun fight right. every metal song. <laughs> right. but i love which, it too i yeah. love it but it's like i have such a hard time doing that like getting right. to, getting those drums to the point where it's like whoa those are like so crazy insane mm-hmm. and and my problem has always been that when it comes to any sort of soft passage I'm so concerned with someone knowing or like being able to tell that I used samples, you mm. know, or yeah. like we've had this talk a lot. Yeah. Like I, I like it's like a huge insecurity of mine where I'm like, because for me, whenever I hear samples, especially on like soft drum rolls or That's like, rough. you know, any yeah. sort of fills, it just completely takes me out of the the feeling that I was in of the song. Totally. So, but it was interesting talking to this one guy. He was like, he's like, yeah, man, like you just got to like. You know, and like what you're saying, like knowing the knowing the the artist or the genre that you're mixing for, and it's like, dude, these dudes don't care about like the the few small snare hits that sound like they're actually hard hits, but just really low in volume. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I, I mean. Like they don't yeah. care about that. I will you know? say though, you're the best at it. Like I know there's been a few times where you you've literally said to me, "It sounds sampley," and I'm like. Uh, I don't think I hear anything other than rad drums. Like that last thing you just sent to me that you recorded in downtown LA, it was incredible. Uh, like I was like, this is how drums should sound for the rest of my life. This is it. Right. This is it. This is the drums. I uh, always wish I'd hear. Here they are. Yeah. So I, get I ended it, up man. not getting that. I ended up not getting that mix because it didn't sound punishing enough. Oh, thanks guys. <laughs> thanks. It was amazing. But, I thought so too. But yeah. yeah. Anyways, do you do you attack a heavy record any different than you attack like a regular record? Hmm. You know, I don't know because I just kind of go into it. I like right. open it up. I kind of hear what they're doing, and I'm just like, all right, let's party. You right. know, I feel like sometimes I'll actually start the heavy record and I'll mix it, and then I'll. I'll reference something else that I feel like is similar just to see where I'm at. But I don't think I start any of them very differently. I think with the heavy record, though, I have to start with the core instruments rather than, say, like a, a more indie band. I'll Like there's this band, Old Sea Brigade, that I've produced and mixed. They're great. I always start with his core, so his like acoustic and his vocal. That's where I start. There might be drums and bass and orchestra behind them, whatever. But that's where I start. Where with the heavy music, I start with, you know, drums and guitar. And I just get those where it's like, this is the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. Then I right. sneak in some bass and then vocals. I just, that kind of, I think maybe the order in which I do things is a little different. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I approach it much differently. Um, You're still going to end up making it like the song that you want, the way you hear it. Exactly. And whatever route I have to take to get there, I don't care. I don't need a system to tell me. I feel like the systems are there to help me do them quicker, maybe. Yeah. So. Oh, here's, you know, we were talking about how a while ago you were mixing. A, I, I remember it specifically because I've ran into the same issue. So you were mixing a record and we were talking about the snare drum. And you were saying how, like, I think I mentioned the snare drum was dark. And your response was like, uh, no man, I think it's good because I'm already boosting like 4 dB 
And when I tracked it, I also added, you know, like mm-hmm. 6 dB. So I'm already at 10 dB. Okay. Now, <laughs> I just found that so interesting because I feel like a lot of the times when we, when you produce a record and then mix it, sometimes you're at a disadvantage because Always you know, you know at what I mean? Disadvantage. Like, yeah, like you know what went into the tracking. Yeah. So, so right there, you were scared to add the extra dB that it needed to get to where it needed to be because you knew how it was tracked. No, you you're know? totally right. I, I have to use separate brains. So in this last record I did for this guy named Matt Redman, I engineered it and co-produced. And when I was mixing it, I had that dilemma so many times where I was just like, uh... Okay. I was nailing the room mics. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Just like, I yeah. can't nail them again. Right. You know, just like you said, but I did it anyway and it turned out fine. But I think sometimes you just had to have a separate brain. And so lately when I've been producing something and I have to mix it, I actually take an extra step in the middle to do a mix setup session. So okay. I'll actually act like I'm the producer preparing it for mix. So, like, do you print everything? That's- I print everything I, I, as, as if I'm going to send it off. That's great. And then I send it off to myself. I save a copy in my mix, my mix folder on my, uh, my main drive, and then I yeah. open those to mix. That's great. That's what I've been doing lately, and it's actually been helping my brain just separate, separate it a little bit. Where before yeah. you see the chaos of your tracking, where if you're moving quick, like, you know, you're like, okay, we're about to do a backup vocal, create track, shift Apple in. Right, yeah. 12. <laughs> right. <laughs> you only yeah. record three, other t- the, you know, the other, what, nine are there. So right. I get rid of all that stuff, and I just kind of, you know, try to try to create a different side of my brain to, to mix. And that's really been helping me. I I know it sounds like an extra stupid step, but it really is smart. No, it's very smart. I mean, all, all it really is is just proper session management. You know? Totally. And when I copy the session over, you know, I only copy the main playlist. I just make sure everything's committed. Right. Every, everything's cross-faded. I've already cleaned up, you know, if we need to clean up the toms or whatever. I've done everything I could as if I was sending it to another mixer. Yeah, because really when you're producing a record, sometimes it's easy to get, you know, to slack on stuff. And Absolutely. It's so like, easy. oh, well, I'm just, I'm just going to start mixing this. It's well, already kind of, yeah. Let's jump yeah. into this, man. I'm killing it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. Well, dude, I got to jump because I have a session coming up. Sick, bro. <laughs> it's been awesome. Yeah, dude. Thanks and, for having uh, me on your uh, podcast or your yeah. borrowed podcast yeah i'm I'm a hijacked podcast oh sodded yeah thanks for talking Um, to me yeah thanks again and uh if you guys want to check out some of jeremy's work it is uh jeremy shgriffith.com and check out all of his stuff Write me an email. Talk to me. I don't care. Hit me up on the contact page and just just ask me some questions if you even care to. (laughs) (laughs) Or stop by your destination, Destin, Florida, right? Yeah, don't do that. (laughs) Just show up unannounced. I like my privacy. (laughs) Thanks, Bob. Cool. Thank you guys very much, and uh, talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.
The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduce the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking Pod Multi-Effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take dramatic leaps so you can reach new heights with your music. Go to www.line6.com to find out more about Line 6. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.